in a way almost like a, a safe fantasy that like all this pain that I'm going through now, I can't get my head around. This is one way that I can take a moment in my day to imagine an end to this. And there's actually, although it sounds similar, a massive difference between that versus someone maybe with the same feelings and motivations behind it, but instead planning to take their own life. And the response should be varied accordingly. And I'm aware that's quite a big ask, but that doesn't have to be something you take on alone. Welcome to an episode of Find Your Voice, a movement led by yours truly, Aaron Dew, a guy who has overcome crippling anxiety, adversity, and difficulty like so many of you in life, whose main goal now is to help you combat your excuses, take control of your life, write your own story, and most importantly, find your voice. So now, without further ado, I welcome the host of the show himself, Mr. Aaron Dew. Okay, so I would like to welcome Bobby onto today's episode of Find Your Voice. Bobby, how are you doing today? I'm good, yeah. Fantastic. Glad to be here. Fantastic. It was great to have you here. So we've had a great conversation offline, and I'm interested actually in quite a few facets of your life now, the more I've got to know you. So depression is part of your story. But you also mentioned something very interesting about body dysmorphia as well. So remind me later on that we have got to get into that as well. But just for the benefit of the listeners, what I want you to do is just tell us a little bit about yourself in terms of the things that you do today, maybe when depression first came in your life as well, and also the actual podcast that you're doing as well. So I do encourage people that listen to my podcast to jump over there because there's some fantastic interviews including one with myself, at least I hope you think that um, that should hopefully be on there as well. So uh, over to you. Sure. So, yep, I'm Bobby Temps and I run a podcast called Mental. And like the name might imply, we're all about destigmatizing mental health, trying to take even down to the words we use. We're very particular about. Um, And this all came from my own experience of living with mental illness Mm -hmm. for as long as I can remember, really, I had symptoms. And growing up, it was something I struggled with, but something where I had no idea what was going on. Mm-hmm. I thought that it was normal that um, young kids struggle to get out of bed some days or have, you know, a persistent dread that they just can't explain at times. It doesn't seem to relate to anything. You just feel scared. Mm-hmm. And now I know that that was depression. But at the time, it was something that I had no idea about. But I'd learned through the way adults around me behaved that you should hide these feelings. And that everyone was more comfortable with you if you pretended everything was okay. You know, you were happy when you're meant to be happy. And you're sad when the adults deem it appropriate. And so in that way, it sort of naturally led me to build up the mask that a lot of people with mental illness have. And I became very good at faking my emotions and it created a lot of distance with my family that years later I'm now trying to rebuild because there was a part of me that they didn't really know. Mm. It's interesting you said that. So funnily enough, me and the wife are having a conversation today about the mask that sometimes people put on. And more so it's to make those around us feel comfortable Mm -hmm. because if we start changing or we start displaying areas of our life that they're not comfortable with or used to, they feel uncomfortable. So what you've effectively done is to keep them comfortable, you made yourself uncomfortable. Around what kind of age were you experiencing this? And when you said initially you didn't recognise it was mental illness, what kind of age was you able to say, actually, this is a condition, this isn't just me and every other child is experiencing this or teenager? Um, Yeah, (laughs) a few questions. The first thing I wanted to mention, though, is you mentioned about the term mental illness. We are really particular, like I mentioned, with language Mm -hmm. because at times when you start looking for it, you can see that the stigma really informs how people talk about mental health. And I do a lot of campaigning for mental health education mm-hmm. in schools, and it's it's going well. <laughs> I'll probably talk about that more later. Absolutely. And with that, 
you know, right up to like senior government officials, they're writing legislation that excludes terms like mental illness because that's stigmatized more. Mm. Mental health sounds friendlier. Mm. Mental well-being sounds even vaguer and more friendly. Mm. And so there can be a tendency to avoid certain terms, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't destigmatize them. So the key there is mental illness is a range of illnesses we experience that relate more predominantly to our mind, whereas mental health is a spectrum of health that just relates to our mind as opposed to physical health. And so at times, because of that stigma, people can use the wrong one. Mm. And I've even had that on the podcast with mental health professionals where they'll talk about, oh, um, I saw a lot of people through my work being discriminated against for their mental health. Mm. So, no, you weren't discriminating because they were healthy. You were discriminating because of illness. Absolutely. That makes sense. And again, this is probably just an awareness issue then. So you don't know what you don't know as well. But I think that makes a lot more sense in terms of your mission. So your mission in terms of destigmatizing <laughs> mental health. Explain that. Explain that podcast Sure. Yeah, because we're quite hardcore with it. Mm. There's a lot of podcasts that that tackle mental health, but we're really quite in depth and we use a lot of statistics. So that really came from seeing all the disinformation out there, seeing how people like myself have no idea Mm. about mental illness growing up. You know, that's what informs my campaigning. Mm -hmm. It's a way to try and safeguard the next generation so that they don't live a life of mental illness where they have no idea what they're going through and therefore no way to to be proactive and deal with that. I know that that didn't help me. And so I want future generations to be equipped with the knowledge to at least recognise symptoms and know where to get support. I love that. And in true Find Your Voice, Aaron style. I was jumping around questions. <laughs> yeah, I tend sorry. to do that a lot. So. No, you'd had. I hadn't answered all your questions. Yeah, so right. that's my fault because I I have it in my head that I want to ask one question and then all of a sudden <laughs> I've got like, but I need to ask him that. But I need to ask him that. So just very quickly, just yeah. segueing backwards to, you said at one point you wasn't sure what it was. You wasn't sure that it was depression, and you just thought that every child has these kind of moments. When was that realization that actually this was something that needed looking at a bit more? Right. That's that's very true. I often describe it as growing up is an experience of figuring out what is a you thing and what mm. is an everything, mm. everyone thing. Like um, and so that's something that it took me getting a lot worse to realize how bad things were. So in part due to my like family background, uh, being Irish, there was a lot of pressure academically. And me having dyslexia, it, it was quite incompatible with my own expectations mm. that my my parents were very supportive on the dyslexia front, but they also really expected high, high achievement. Right. Meanwhile, I was just happy that I learned how to read, you know, because there was for most of my primary and secondary school, I was half the reading age of my peers. And so I went from that to then getting really good support and then being a higher reading age than my Mm. peers. So for me, that was the achievement. That was the main struggle. And beyond that, I was quite happy to to pass things. But yeah, there was this family pressure and it really intensified around university. I had no plans to go. I already had a job from when I was 16 working part-time. I had already started a business And so I very much plan to just keep working. And so all this kind of narrative around you go to uni and you'll get a job just fell on deaf ears with me. Um, And I saw a lot of people going that route that I could say it made sense for them. Mm -hmm. But for me, it felt like I would have been set up to fail. That I was excelling in the working world. Yeah. And I was already finding that I could relate to people more at work than mm-hmm. I could at sixth form. You know, that was my mindset. And I come from a really hardworking family. So that environment is very comfortable for me, whereas education wasn't. So me going to uni was was scary, was something I never wanted, didn't really think was going to be expected of me until it came to the end of the gap year that I had 
because I'd applied for uni like everyone does. It was a class in our timetable. And so then it was counting down the months until that. And my parents would wait for me at home. They'd like just sit in the kitchen and I'd like come back from a shift exhausted and they'd be then just primed to rehash the same conversation and try and pressure me over and over again. And eventually it got to a point where I just gave into that. It didn't feel like I had any other choice. And then you fast forward to me being dropped off at Bangor University, Mm. which (laughs) growing up in Birmingham feels like the middle of nowhere. Um, And, you know, literally to give you an idea how much university was not the plan, Mm. I was going down the list of ones I could get into with my grades. Um, I applied for Aberystwyth. I applied for Bangor. You know, we were... (laughs) You know, I was just going through the alphabet and so I ended up at what was ultimately a random university that looked okay and had a course that I thought seemed interesting. I don't actually remember what the course was now. But, you know, that could also be partly the depression. That that has definitely been a factor in me struggling to remember a lot of difficult times. And so as things got worse in university, I became more and more withdrawn more and more isolated my like sleep cycle was completely off like living like a bat um and other than you know a few people that had an idea what was going on for the most part I was just left to that there wasn't really any university intervention when I was missing classes even when I went to my tutor to say look I'm not coping with this Mm. there, there was no answer they just kind of looked at me blankly yeah and Meanwhile, I felt that I had to convince my parents to let me leave. That with without their blessing, I would just go back to right, them okay. and be potentially pressured back out the door again. Mm. And so that was incredibly difficult, trying to have a narrative around mental health, something we'd never really talked about. And, you know, not wanting to worry them, but yeah. also they kind of needed to be worried in order to course, get yeah. how bad I was getting. Yeah. And, you know, I look back at photos of myself then and I... I hardly recognize myself and I, you know, don't really still have contact with anyone I knew there. I think even now I struggle to believe that anyone could have actually been my friend because I don't think I was myself at all. It sounds like um, quite a traumatic experience, actually, if I'm being honest. So similar to yourself in terms of having, say, anxiety, for example, prior to university, I was able to kind of mask my time at university with a lot of alcohol and a lot of partying and that stuff and I kind of fitted in I was lucky that my best mate went with me as well and I knew a few people from back home so I had a bit of a comfort blanket around me but hearing you say that now and knowing myself prior to going to university I can almost see that I could have potentially had a similar output so I explained to you I was quite introverted very very shy Mm -hmm. and going to university was the last thing I ever wanted to do I wanted to become a boxer boxing was my dream I picked up boxing I was picked up by some great coaches and my parents were like nope no chance you're going to university and it's funny because and I'm sure it's the same with your parents that they did everything in your best interest thinking with what they knew at that point right but obviously they didn't have the full picture and the context of actually what you were going through and you know we can look back in hindsight now and understand it probably wasn't the best move in terms of sending you to university but right what's your feelings towards that I'm sure you've got no sort of ill feeling or anything I or do you mostly um I never really got a proper acknowledgement of what they did. Right. You know, that's something I'm still working on. Okay. As we we have a lot more of a dialogue around mental health now, and they've really come round to, like, what I do in terms of the podcast and other campaigning work. Mm. Um, but when we talk about it, they always focus on, well, we got you out of that, didn't we? So there's more of a kind of, saviour narrative as opposed to that also being a position I was put into by them um but no at the end of the day I'm still an adult and I still you know had options but the option was more likely I move out and I wasn't in the financial position to just up and leave home all of a sudden and I don't think I was really mentally ready for that I'd like lived away from home quite a lot but I think that would have that was terrifying because it felt finite. Mm. 
it felt like I would have to cut them off mm. and sort of almost hide from them until after September had passed. Yeah. Um, so that wasn't really an, uh, an option in my mind. But the problem was we were kind of speaking different languages. Of course, of course. So they were using a lot of the kind of generic prospectusy talk about, you know, broadening your horizons Absolutely. and how do you know you won't like something if you've not tried it? And, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I could talk to that all day and say, you know, I, I don't think I'd like skydiving. Yeah. I've yeah. not, I've not tried it. I don't think I'd like you on that. <laughs> slamming my foot in a door. Like <laughs> Absolutely. I have enough context cues yeah. of being in education for most of my waking life mm, so far mm. to know that it's, I'm probably good. I don't really want any more of this. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, we were speaking different languages and speaking with very different generational context as well. Yeah, I think we spoke um, earlier, it might have been on your podcast, about our upbringing being quite similar in terms of from looking at, I've come from like an Asian family, you were saying your background's Irish as well. And there is a tendency as well to, <sighs> trying to choose the right words here, but almost conform to what is expected of you, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I, I had the same kind of pressures. And sometimes, even though it could be a lot less subtle, you almost feel obliged to kind of just go with it. I found a lot of my life doing things because I thought it would make them happy or not upset them to the point where I have to leave home or something, for example, if that makes sense. I mean, it was never that serious. And I feel that's a pressure that I'm not sure how it is in other cultures or minority groups or majority groups, you would call them. But I think that's something that I can definitely relate with. It's something that's very apparent and it's something that I'm trying to move away from. So for my younger siblings, I have to be conscious of the words that we say because sometimes you might say something and then that one sentence could almost pressurise that person into thinking they need to go and get a degree because their older brother's got a degree, for example. Yeah. Hopefully made a bit of sense with that. No, definitely. And I think naively when I was younger... I believed I'd skirted around a lot of that, mm. that out of, so it's just me and my sister, um, and she's a lot more academic, she doesn't have dyslexia, she's, um, she was the, I guess, conforming one out of the two of us, and I was the one that rebelled, and so there were so many things that I just did my own way, that I sort of thought I was immune to the family pressure, mm. but I still feel it now, Yeah, but... I still actively choose what parts of it to conform to. And so I think that made it easier. But the difference was university wasn't a battle I knew how to win. Right. So now, knowing what you know now, just thinking from a listener's perspective, because there's probably certain parts of that story that they can resonate with. What gets you through it now? So, for example, if you were put into a university type environment, so a completely different context, it could be a job, for example, or a project, but you had kind of felt that, feeling coming on again that you were getting maybe when you're at university what kind of things do you do maybe on a daily basis or you would do in that moment to just kind of get you through it like do you have coping mechanisms do you have any tools or routines that you can maybe give the listeners right so it's a lot of it is very opposite to what I described being at university okay so there a lot of the behaviors I had felt safe Mm. but were actually a sign of me not coping at all you know it felt safer to isolate myself and try and figure everything out on my own and I think that is more commonly a male approach as well that we can have Um, we're not taught how to emote as much as women are and so it can be like oh these I can't handle these emotions I've just got to kind of like clutch them all and try and sort them on my own yeah um and then i'll find a way to to put them out there um so very much the opposite to that so nowadays when i know i'm getting bad or even yeah i guess it's twofold so when i know i'm getting bad i'm a lot more likely to reach out to people you know whether that's just like talking things through with friends whether that's going to see my counselor more often there's approaches i have in place and i have a support network because that was the other thing with university i you know gave up my job to go there i scaled back the business that i was running and so so much of my ecosystem of support i was just completely geographically cut off from and so now it's very much the opposite i have a really great team i've got really great friends 
my family know how to support me a lot better. And so that dialogue has been really powerful. But it still takes maintenance. And there's things day to day, however I'm feeling, I try and work on, like being active. I go for walks all the time. I'll, you know, listen to a, I'm, I'm a, I love working. <laughs> Very much got that from my parents. But there's ways in which I can find self-care and work together. You know, I'll go for a walk. I'll listen to a podcast that I need to research. Um, and I find that activity really helpful. Um, and just over time, you get better at recognizing mm. where you're at and what you need to do. Interesting. I love that. And I'm going to ask you a question now, so I'm putting you on the spot a bit here. Okay. Um, and it's just, again, it's come off a conversation that me and the wife were actually having this morning when we were driving. <laughs> she's almost like your pre-interview oh, interview. She's incredible. Right? I, I'm <laughs> trying to get her on a podcast, but she won't come because she's just like, no, I don't want to be on there. But one day, hopefully. <laughs> um, so one of the things that... I wish I had the answer to and I really want to kind of I would do anything if I knew that it would give me the answer is when people are at the end of or what they believe to be at the end where they have no other options Mm -hmm. i.e. suicidal thoughts I believe sometimes that's a bit too far in terms of telling that person okay now you need to start loving yourself or you need to do gratitude so we were just having this brainwave and we're like or we almost need to do preventative things or things initially to kind of build your resilience so that if that moment strikes, you can then hopefully have that toolkit there. I mean, have you ever thought about that in terms of... So the reason I ask this question, I apologize if I'm <laughs> The answer is yes. <laughs> Brilliant. And the reason I ask it is because people reach out to me now um, right. after listening to the show and they'll say stuff along those lines. And I don't know what to say. I don't know the right thing. So I'll signpost them to like organizations and stuff. And obviously I don't want to say something because I, I don't want to take that responsibility. But at, at the same time, I want to give them the right answer so when you're at that stage of it what would you recommend or what would you recommend saying um i'm i'm gonna pick out two of the things to answer that so first off in terms of prevention that's so so important um and that's very much at the core of what i do with the podcast and also the campaigning so with the campaign that's a petition um that we've got nearly two hundred thousand people to sign now um, including a lot of support from MPs and other change makers. Amazing. And from September this year, mental health education will be mandatory in all schools in England and Wales. Wow. And so that's the, the main thing for me is education, which saying it now almost sounds a bit ironic given how I speak about education <laughs> in my own experience. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, this is really important this work. Is life education. And this is this is throughout primary and secondary education. So being integrated right throughout that mental health is something that's acknowledged. Because if that doesn't happen, it it creates a seed of stigma that people realise, oh, this is something we don't talk about. How is it we talk about condoms and periods, mm-hmm. but we can't even talk about this thing? And that stigma people carry with them. It creates this reality that you can't speak about this taboo subject. It self-perpetuates the stigma. And it means that people like myself who needed the support younger don't get it because they've got no idea what's going on, Mm. no idea where the support is, Mm. and no role models. Because there's this fear at times that I come up against and people are like, if you teach this stuff, people will get ideas and they'll become mentally ill because it will get in their head. And in reality, over 75% of people have developed mental illness by the age of 18. So it's not that it doesn't exist in younger people, Mm. it's that it's not being recognised until later. And this is a massive problem for kids out there that are struggling and aren't getting the support and, like you've described, could be getting a lot more could be getting a lot worse when a lot of this could be prevented Mm. so that's answer to the first part of the question (laughs) the second part in terms of it's it's really difficult and i'm speaking from the point of view of having volunteered with samaritans Mm -hmm. so i've been through the training i'm an expert on this but it it makes it a hell of a lot easier but it it's never easy having those conversations i think for me one thing that's missed a lot um, and that even came up in a, an interview I did earlier today 
is the levels of suicidality that so often because it's a scary thing for us to deal with most people have no idea what to say and so their default can be to go to the worst case scenario a lot of people are considering suicide in a very abstract way as a coping mechanism with mental illness that it's in a way almost like a, a safe fantasy that like all this pain that I'm going through now, I can't get my head around. This is one way that I can take a moment in my day to imagine an end to this. And there's actually, although it sounds similar, a massive difference between that versus someone maybe with the same feelings and motivations behind it, but instead planning to take their own life. And the response should be varied accordingly. And I'm aware that's quite a big ask, but that doesn't have to be something you take on alone. Yeah. You know, I I recommend all the time that people talk to Samaritans. That's pretty much what I do. Yeah, and I've had it where I've taken calls there and it's been um, a family member or a friend has picked up the phone and they're like, oh, here's a situation, I'm passing the phone over. <laughs> you know, wow. that that is an option. Mm. We don't have to have all the answers, but I think one thing we should all take responsibility for is at least trying to have the conversation. In fact, don't try and have any of the answers initially. First off, listen, get an idea of the level of suicidality, connect with that person, give them the chance to share, because particularly when people are at their very worst, the last thing you want is to cut off communication. So create a safe space for them to keep you updated on how bad they are, and they will do so. And from there, you can then assess, you know, do they need a conversation with Samaritans? Do I need to give them a leaflet mm. versus do I need to say, OK, let's make a plan. Let's get you to the GP. Absolutely. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. First, I want to acknowledge you for the amazing work you guys have done <laughs> with your petition. That's absolutely fantastic. Thank you. That truly is making an impact, truly making a change. So um, thank you guys for doing that. <laughs> and obviously for your answers at the end. I think you're right. We should all take a responsibility. This is our society that we've created subconsciously or consciously in some in some aspects and even if it is just that one answer there just samaritans if it is just recommended them or signposting them i seriously urge that that's literally all i've ever known so obviously when i'm getting asked this stuff i'm scratching my head in the middle of the night and i'm searching finding the best tools so that's something i recommend so Thank you for that. I'm going to segue ever so slightly now because there's another part of um, your story that I was really interested in and a bit of a taboo subject, um, maybe for men, and it's about body dysmorphia. Mm -hmm. So if you wouldn't mind telling us your struggles with that as well. Sure. So that um, is something I experienced quite parallel to the depression. There's definitely crossover in symptoms. Mm -hmm. Um, But from a really young age... I was very aware that I had to sort of fight for myself, that I had different ambitions in life to those around me and potentially my parents as well. Um, But also I just was coming at life from a quite different perspective. You know, I was that kid that you asked, what do you want to do in life? And I had a list and I was told, you're not allowed a list. You got to choose a thing. Um, And You know, it's interesting looking back because now most of the people I know and work with have several different jobs and professions. um, And that makes sense to me. So I think I was aware from a really early point, therefore, that I had to be my own advocate and figure out certain things in order to survive. That I was very aware of my difference, that I wasn't a, a bog standard kid. And that there were things I was going to have to overcome and that those around me weren't going to understand that a lot of the time. And one of those things was my perception of how I looked. And that, you know, that was, I guess, a sign of me feeling different. You know, there were elements of my difference that were real and there were elements like body dysmorphia that were not. The best way I can describe it is I saw myself almost like a Picasso painting I'd look in the mirror and my face was all wrong. Right. You know, my nose was too too big, but also too narrow. My uh, my eyes are very slightly asymmetric. But these things were 
massive in my mind. You know, I just looked completely wrong. And I remember, you know, I'd be going to school and be looking at my family and being like, these these people look normal. They look yeah. okay. Like, how did, how did this happen? Right. And, you know, how could anybody ever want to be my friend at school when I look like this, when I'm so disgusting? How could I ever, you know, grow up and get married one day, like is is the kind of expectation. And that continued for a long time as I tried to tackle it. I I knew how much it was holding me back and that I had to figure this shit out, that I couldn't change how I looked but I was just going to have to roll with it and I was going to have a lot of things that I would need to deal with in my life. And if I can't change it, I just need to get this one out of the way. And so I, you know, I really tried to do a lot of work on, you know, positive affirmations and trying to find positive things about myself, you know, find one positive and then see if I can find another and just really chip away at that. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. until I started seeing myself in a more real way. And it's not something I I guess I've done as much work on now because at the time it felt like it was getting better and it was getting solved. But actually, instead, it developed into an eating disorder. So on the surface level, I did really well at like increasing my self-worth. But in the background, I had a lot of I had a lot of unhealthy mechanisms that were kind of burrowing down mm-hmm. and getting more severe. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually wasn't until starting my podcast, yeah. which was post-depression diagnosis, but pre-anorexia diagnosis. It wasn't until interviewing people with similar experience that I realized I even had that condition. I even had an eating disorder. And a lot of that, like we've talked about, was the lack of education. Yeah. I'd never seen men have eating disorders. Mm. I didn't really think it was possible. Mm. You know, I thought maybe a few do, but they're anomalies. Yeah. And so that, you know, that took being delved quite deeply into the mental health world before mm. I came to terms with that. That's interesting. Thank you for sharing that. It's quite heartbreaking, actually, to hear you go back and say that in terms of when you're at school and you were like, why don't I look like these people? Or why am I looking like this? Because I'm thinking there's probably other people listening to this who may have experienced that or their children would so I don't wish that on anyone and obviously thanks for sharing how you kind of came over that with a lot of the affirmation work and self-love work which I recommend to anyone who's probably going through that the other thing I wanted to ask you was I see body dysmorphia on a huge scale within the fitness industry something that I operate in and I see it more so on the people who are on stage i.e the athletes who compete and I know you do modeling as well Mm -hmm. so does that help you doing modeling when the whole idea of being on stage, for example, is when pe- people can critique you or they can point out certain things with you? I mean, I'm not sure how the modeling side works, but I know the fitness thing. These people who have body dysmorphia, they then put themselves on stage. And it's, it's counterintuitive in my eyes because you're chasing perfection. Which, which never really works, but I know a lot of those people struggle. So in terms of modeling, was that... Again, I could be completely off the mark here. Did you do that to prove something to yourself or was it just something that you enjoyed doing? How has that helped you with your body image? It's A lot of this stuff is quite difficult to describe because it's quite nuanced. So body dysmorphia can be a separate condition, although it's not separately diagnosable. Okay. Um, but it can also be a symptom of eating disorders. Um so within that, modelling was actually quite separate. Okay. So one of the things that is absolutely true of the modelling industry that you've said is the, the pressure on image mm. and that image being very narrow. I happen to be someone that is the default men's catwalk measurements. Mm-hmm. So when clothes are first made by designers, they're made to measurements very similar to mine. And then all other shapes are built from there, mm-hmm. which is a big part of why um larger people really struggle to find clothes that fit them or people that are shorter or um just anyone that's significantly outside of that range. So in a way I I do fit the modeling industry quite well on a surface level. And because I'd done so much self-worth work 
it was actually quite productive for me to be in that. And I, and I still do modeling now because there was something to validate. Mm. I already had a certain amount of self-belief and self-love. Mm. So when I got jobs and when I got compliments, there was somewhere for that to resonate. Mm-hmm. For me, the most concerning side of the modeling industry um, from a model perspective, because there's obviously concerns in terms of how the industry behaves, but from why people get into it, um, a lot of people get into it for that wrong reason. They go in looking for validation, but they come in with without the self-confidence, without the self-worth. And so there is nothing to validate. Mm. In fact, I see a lot of models go into it with a lot of self-loathing and they think if only enough people think I'm pretty, then that will change. But instead what happens is their focus is totally on the negative. Every casting they don't get, they start tearing themselves apart Mm -hmm. for because that resonates with their self-loathing. So in a way, I was doing okay on that. Um, and I found modeling very productive because I was in a good place to go into it. Mm-hmm. The complicated thing is that all was happening quite parallel to my eating disorder. Right. Um, but it's an important point because a lot of the misconception is that eating disorders, particularly anorexia or bulimia, um, are very much on finite visual. You know, how, how thin can you be? What do you look like? Are you happy with your appearance? Mm. But it's actually more so about control. So it had become a way for me to feel more in control of my life because I was in control of what's going in my mouth. And from a young age, often that's the only thing you can control. Mm. And so I'd built a, a safety mechanism in that and that's really the core of what an eating disorder is. The visual aspect is kind of secondary mm. um, because it's it's an illusion anyway. You know, hence why body dysmorphia yeah. is often a symptom there, where you get people that are a stick thin and still think they're fat, but they'll find a way. Of course, you know, I I could do that. There was. Mm parts of my body that I could be like, no, it's fat. Like yeah. if I really lean over in my <laughs> yeah, chair, absolutely. I can make a roll. Of course. Any, any of us can do that. And so that's what you focus on because it feeds the control element and it justifies the unhealthy behavior. But the unhealthy behavior also makes you feel safe because when you're struggling with whatever's caused this um it's a way to feel like you've, you're have you back in charge again mm-hmm. and that you're doing something productive. Yeah, even though it isn't. Yeah. The, the, you know, the appearance is just what that happens to be. Yeah. It's usually not the, the main motivation uh, because otherwise, if nothing else, you would see that most people... Um, yeah, I've got a good way of phrasing this. Because if that was true, if it was all about appearance then it would only be people that don't fit the modeling stereotypes that would get eating disorders. And maybe that would mean they're over a certain weight and then they lose that weight and then they're okay again. But that's that's not how it works Mm. at all. It's really interesting you said that. So I suffered with a a binge eating disorder about eight years ago. And as you're saying that, I'm just... It's resonating with me because I'm like, there was that element of control that you're speaking about. Yeah. So on the appearance, I was still five, six percent body fat and I'd train three times a day. I'd absolutely hammer myself in the gym, under eat all the time. And then I'd gorge on the weekends to excessive amounts to the point I couldn't even drive my car back and I'd feel sick. I'd hate myself. I'd look in the mirror. It's about then controlling myself the next five, six days where I'm just beating myself up and feeling like, okay, I've got control again, but then I lose it again. And it's just really interesting because I've never actually thought of it like that. And that's why it's so important to to get to the root cause with, with really any mental illness, you know, where has that come from? What is the thing you're struggling with? And one way I use to try and help people understand mental illnesses, particularly their kind of non-linear nature, Mm -hmm. um, for example, you can be diagnosed with more than one or sometimes, or for many conditions, they have symptoms shared. On the surface level, that can be a bit confusing. 
But the way I describe it to people often is that if you instead look at the symptoms of mental illness as a reaction to the trauma you've experienced, and then you get enough symptoms and they equal a mental illness, that can be a a more straightforward way of looking at it. That because of certain things you've been through, you've developed symptoms. They could be, some of them will be coping mechanisms. Some of them will just be purely a sign of how you're struggling. Mm -hmm. And you build up enough of those and you've then got a full-blown condition, something that needs to be tackled. And in that way, I think we can all relate to mental health because we may not have all had a diagnosable condition, but we've all felt anxious. We've all had periods of feeling low. We've all controlled our eating at times. Um, And for the and in healthy cases, these things come and go. But it's just so dependent on what you go through. Yeah. You know, I definitely can acknowledge that whilst I went through certain things that contributed to mental illness, I could have been better had my circumstances been different. I could have also been a lot worse. Mm. You know, I was never hospitalized with my eating disorder, for example. But I've known people that have been. Yeah. And I can relate to it just as much. I can see the version of me that could have gone of down course, that route. Yeah, yeah, that one decision. Interesting. I could speak about that for ages because <laughs> you've opened up a can of worms in my head, but I need to uh, progress. Sure. So given your adversity and given how you've overcame a lot through your life in terms of you've found coping mechanisms, you've found self-love, and you're in a much more confident place, especially like with your modelling, which I think is fantastic, that you now have enough in you even if you weren't to get the validation, I believe you'd still be fine in terms of doing what you're doing. In this precise moment then, what's your biggest fear? My biggest fear, I think failure and meaninglessness um, would be my biggest fear. That's been consistent through my life. Okay. A lot of that is like how I was raised to, to be a high achiever, yeah. to work very hard, to make your family proud, but also the immense pressure I put on myself. It's not a coincidence that I have several jobs. It's not a coincidence that I work unreasonable hours all the time. And I just really want to make an impact. That's what I believe in. That's what I was raised to do. And that's the fear. Because success doesn't scare me. Mm. Like a lot of people are daunted by that. Like I love job interviews. I've so, I sometimes will freak job interviewers out because I'll be like, oh, I've been really <laughs> so looking forward to this. <laughs> um, and they're like, what? No, you're yeah. meant to be scared. Yeah. But I'm not scared of that. I'm scared of all the things I might not achieve. Yeah. And I in a that. way, particularly depression, is a threat to that. That if I have a bad day, my mind then goes to, what if this was my life? Right. What if every day was like this and I achieved nothing? Who the fuck would I be then? Absolutely, yeah. And when you have a bad day, for example, because we all have bad days, what's your thought process then? Are you compassionate with yourself? Because one of the things I do when I have a day where I I like to call it a funk, when I'm in a funk, (laughs) for example, it rarely lasts more than two days. That's probably the maximum it's ever lasted, but it'll always be a day and it'll come every 10, 14 days. But I always tell myself it'll pass. I've got past it before, it'll pass again. That's literally my mantra. And I've I've had to do that because... I'm kinder to myself doing that. But just being able to say to myself, it'll pass, it it helps me move forward the next day. Do you have something that you perhaps use in that instance? I've got a lot better at being compassionate to myself. I have more projects and get work less hours than Mm. I used to. And that's been a, a difficult but important balance. And I've just had to work very hard at sort of reframing that fear of failure that... I used to think that I have a day off and I'm automatically a failure. Mm -hmm. And now I can acknowledge better that, no, I've still achieved a lot. I still can achieve a lot. I'm just going to have a quick pause in the middle here. But it's an ongoing process. And a lot of that is about building this self-worth and thinking that I deserve a day off. I didn't used to think that. You remind me of myself, so... Similar to yourself, I've got loads of jobs. I don't just have one job title. I work around the clock 24-7. I expect more from myself than anyone else could expect from me as well. And I think we've gone on the same kind of journey where if we had continued that without the self-love element, without the compassion, I think we'd burn out and we'd struggle a lot more. So um, that's to anyone out there who's 
mimicking our lives and <laughs> trying to take on the world and leave an impact. So on that yeah. note, what I'm going to do <laughs> Plot is... Plot spoiler. Absolutely. The end is burnout. <laughs> <laughs> burnout, yeah, absolutely. So on that note, what I want to do is segue into what I like to call the fun part of the show. So okay. most of the interviews can be quite emotive. We normally talk about adversity and stuff. So this time we're going to lighten the mood and we're going to get to know Bobby just that little bit more. So sure. for the next 30 to 60 seconds, I've got some random questions here on my phone. I'm going to ask you. timed pressure. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I don't actually time. It's kind of when I just think, okay, that's enough. Okay. <laughs> and then I'll stop it. Um, one word or one sentence answers only. Okay, we're going to go in three, two, one. Okay, the ability to fly or be invisible. Be invisible. The number one thing that annoys you. Ignorance. The best advice anyone has ever told you. Uh, you are enough. The worst advice anyone has ever told you. Uh, man up. Money or fame. Fame. Your biggest strength. Resilience. Your proudest achievement. Campaigning. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Your favourite motivational speaker. Lisa Nichols. If you had an extra hour a day, how would you spend it? <laughs> Probably working. <laughs> yeah. The best lesson anyone has ever taught you. Going to go with friendship, that's yeah. broad. <laughs> that's fine. If you could get the listeners to practice one thing after this episode to benefit their lives, what would it be? Self-care. If you could abolish one thing in the world, what would it be? Poverty. Your favourite book? The Crimson Petal and the White. What are you secretly good at? that nobody knows. Horse riding? The ability to read minds or predict the future. Read minds. Who is your biggest role model? I have a few. One of my more obscure is Will I Am. Okay. That tends to surprise yeah. people. Interesting. It, it does, yeah, absolutely. I've not heard <laughs> that one before. Uh, your favourite food? Pizza. If you could relive one day again, what day would it be? I don't know. This one. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> and what song best describes your life? This isn't true, but Oh No, Marina and the Diamonds. Okay. I've not heard that. Well, in my, in my head, yeah. I sometimes pretend that that's me, but it's right, not. Okay. <laughs> I'm a lot nicer than that song. <laughs> okay, fantastic. So that brings us to the end of the fun part of the show. So the next question is about reflection. Right. And I believe hindsight's a wonderful thing. It can teach us ways that we can get through life easier, quicker, or with less heartache. But I also believe the journey teaches us so much as well. So knowing exactly what you know now with all of your knowledge and all of your wisdom, if you could maybe go back to a younger Bobby, and whisper something in his ears, what would you say? It's really tricky. I'm not I'm not very succinct in that way. Okay. I would want to tell him everything, but <laughs> I think... You've got 10 seconds with him. Oh. Ah. Just for some more pressure. I, I don't know, because I think I always knew it was going to be okay. For the, for the most part, I always yeah. knew it was going to be okay. I think I would... Probably a few decisions mm. that I wish to gone a different way. I'd be like, quick fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> say no to these things. Say yes to these <laughs> things. Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> so the last question that I ask all of my guests is about legacy. And I know you spoke about wanting to leave an impact as well. That's really important to you. So let's imagine in 150 years, science fails to save us. And all that exists is this book. And this book, yeah. it's about you. It's about your life. It's about the incredible things that you've done and the incredible things you're about to do as well. Firstly, what would the title of the book be? And secondly, what would the summary at the back tell us about you? So partly, I think because of my Irishness, I think swearing is quite on brand. Mm -hmm. So um, something like changed shit would be a fun title <laughs> right. to me. Um, in terms of the summary, a lot of it does come back to like lasting impact. When you were saying congratulations for the campaigning, mm. I still find that weird to right. respond to because... I still haven't fully got my head around the amount of progress that's I've incredible. been part of. So the fact that, you know, that's coming in September, in a few years, I might be hiring people that have gone through education that I was part of. And so that that is what I would want the summary to be, that I was part of massive change around how we talk about mental health, how we support people that are struggling, mm -hmm. but also that there's just greater tolerance in general. I, in many ways, think I'm a sort of unconventional host for a podcast. Yeah. I don't think I'm the sort of the generic white man mm. that, you know, gets cast in the romantic lead of movies. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not that guy. But it continually surprises me that people can relate to what I share, but it's because I'm, I really try and be honest and raw. Yeah. And people can connect to the the universal nature of emotions, mm -hmm. even if my life has been a bit uh, alternative at times. Yeah, I love that. And it will sink in one day. I'm very <laughs> proud 
I just think it's incredible because that is a legacy that is one of the questions I always ask myself and we spoke about this earlier and I'm going off on a bit of a tangent was how do you leave an impact because one of the things I don't want to do is be that person who just hashtags mental health yeah. right because okay you've hashtag mental health what are you actually changing what are you actually doing that's actively moving the needle forward should we say mm-hmm. so I just think what, you, what you've done there is such an incredible thing you and I'm sure other people have supported you in that as well so for sure I sat find your voice myself Aaron you know we acknowledge you for that because you're going to make the world a better place in the future because I think we're in a society where I can't see mental, mental illness changing right now in terms of getting any better it just seems to be on the rise at the minute I feel comfort knowing that we have something especially in the educational system uh, we both got our own opinions on the educational system <laughs> but at least what you're doing is okay I can't change it in terms of I can't replace it with something that you'd want what I can do is supplement it with something incredible so for that thank you and just before I give you a chance and the listeners a chance to connect which is something that I strongly urge everyone to do after this show is there anything that you wish I had asked you on this episode or maybe something that you want to leave the listeners with yes so the thing that I would want to leave the listeners with I mentioned the best piece of advice I've got I think was your question Mm -hmm. um being you are enough Mm -hmm. and I cheated on that question because it's something I say to myself and it's something that we say at the end of every episode of my podcast um that's been incredibly powerful for me in terms of removing this dangerous binary idea around mental health that you're either ill or you're well. Yeah. And in fact, I, I would argue everybody is somewhere between that. And for me, that was really powerful, realising that you can be enough at any point in that journey that on this day I've made this progress and that's fine. Mm. I don't have to constantly judge myself against the end goal. I can keep that in mind, but you've still got to have fun along the journey. Absolutely. Because if, if you are a high achiever, the only thing that will happen is even if you reach the goal, you'll just set another one. Another one. (laughs) So you have to find a way to enjoy the process. And that's life in general, but also specifically mental health recovery. You're allowed to love yourself and and not judge yourself as a failure just because you haven't reached perfection yet. You never will. Never will. It's elusive, yeah. I love that answer. So just on your podcast and how we can reach you as well, what's the best platforms or the best way that the listeners can connect with yourself? Sure. So if you go to mentalpodcast.co.uk, all the links to listen are on there. The petition is also linked as well if people want to go sign that. Um, We're still working on Scotland and Northern Ireland Mm -hmm. to get full UK coverage. Mm -hmm. So that is very much ongoing. Fantastic. What I'm going to do is put all of that in the show notes. It's been uh, informative, educational for myself, something that I've learned a lot about. I've enjoyed it a lot. So thank you for your time. And for everyone else at home, thank you for listening. Thank you. And remember, this podcast is absolutely free. So all we ask in return is for you to share this with a friend and drop us a five-star review over on iTunes. Have an awesome day.